but they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. I got baptized at uh, Lake Minnetonka. Uh, I hit a couple backflips. Playoffs? Don't talk about playoffs. You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. My swag was having no swag. All right, everyone, and welcome back here to another installment of the Minnesota Sports Podcast here on September 30th. And we are diving into all that is Minnesota sports here today. We'll start off here with the Minnesota Vikings. And diving right into this game or this kind of matchup here this week with the Cleveland Browns. Again, it's a big game because Kevin Stefanski, the head coach of the Cleveland Browns, used to be the offensive coordinator for the Minnesota Vikings. I think a lot of, you know, that's pretty common. I think everybody kind of knows that. Um, there's also the bit about uh, the special teams coordinator, Mike Prefer. He used to be the special teams coordinator in Minnesota for a long time. Ryan Ficken was his protege. He is the special teams coordinator for the Minnesota Vikings right now. There's just a lot of storylines. Stefanski, because he was with the Vikings for so long, made a lot of connections with other coaches. And there's just a lot of crossplay between these two teams, even though I don't think, I think Zimmer and Stefanski got along together based on like third-hand reporting. I don't think they were like buddy-buddy, anything close, but I still think in terms of pride, Zimmer is going to want to win this game to say, you know what, there were rumors that Stefanski was going to take my job a couple years ago. If I didn't beat New Orleans, he was going to become the head coach and all that kind of stuff. And if you're Stefanski, you spend so much time in Minnesota, you want to go back in with your new team, you want to win to say, yeah, like I'm a big, not in a cocky sense, I'm a big deal, but more of just like, yes, I deserve this. I spent my time. It's like a homecoming. You want to come home and you want to show everybody who watched you for years that, yeah, I'm, I'm supposed to be where I'm at now. And the thing with Kevin Stefanski and Mike Zimmer is, obviously Zimmer a defensive guy, Stefanski an offensive guy. Stefanski adopted the Zimmer system, a little bit of pound the run and kind of be more, uh, conservative is not the right word, but be a little bit more strategic in the passing game. You're not just going to throw to throw. Uh, you're going to throw when it's needed, and partially it's because of the offensive setup that Cleveland has. I mean, let's be honest, they have two very good running backs. We talked about it a little bit yesterday. The biggest strength of their team is how balanced they are, and it's how impressive they are with two good running backs. And I know the Vikings have Madison along with Dalvin Cook, who I think Madison is a very, very solid number two. Could be a number one on a lot of teams. But, I mean, Dalvin Cook gets 95% of the carries when he's healthy and in the game. So... There's not really a dual approach to Madison like there is a dual approach to Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb. I mean, it's just pretty obvious. And Stefanski likes to, and I've said that, you know, Stefanski doesn't, the way that the offense is set up, Stefanski doesn't do it because that's how he exactly believes, I don't think. It's just, what is the best position to win? I have two good running backs. I have a quarterback who's good but not elite. How can I maximize his talent? Well, it's the same way with Kirk Cousins. And it's not to say that Baker's on the same level as Kirk. Obviously, Kirk is better. He's not, like, leagues better, but he's he's better. Like, if you're going to pick one to take into a game with, I'll take Kirk. But uh, he still can play, but you want to limit his mistakes. You want to make the game as easy for him as possible. And the way to do that is by getting really good running backs, which we talked about yesterday. Go listen to yesterday's podcast 
uh, on Apple and Spotify as well, that it's pretty darn easy when you can run the ball. And for the Vikings to stop them, for the Vikings to win, they're going to need to prove that they can stop the run. All this is to say is that this is going to be a good matchup between Stefanski and Zimmer. There's going to be a lot of chess matches going back and forth because, A, one's a defensive guy, one's an offensive guy. The other is just that they both know each other really well. They spent hours upon hours for years together since Zimmer first arrived in 2014. So since Zimmer arrived there, Stefanski has been working there as assistant coaches and quarterbacks coaches and offensive coordinator and all that stuff. And I mean, obviously, uh, Stefanski was there before. He was he was brought in by Brad Childress, I believe, in 2005. It was his first year with the Minnesota Vikings. He was there every year since. It's a cool story. Um, but it's going to be a good chess match. But for it to be relevant is the other sides of the ball are going to have to play too. And what that means is Cleveland is going to have to get some play out of their defense, which I think they can. They're a very uh, they're a very competent defense. Um, I don't think they're top, uh, I don't think they're top two, top three, but they're competent enough to where they're just so balanced. They're a whole team of B's. And when you have a whole team of above average players, that makes everybody look good. You know, some teams like the Vikings are very top heavy. You have guys like Kendricks and Smith and Cousins and, and all that kind of stuff. But then you also have the Nick Vigils and the, you know, Bashad Breelands and all that kind of stuff. So, it's sometimes it's better just to be very consistent all the way around, even if it means your top end isn't as good, but it means that your floor isn't as low. Uh, but this is to the point of saying that the Vikings need to play well on offense. And we talked about the defense yesterday. So talking on the offense here, the biggest thing I think we need to look at, we can talk about the skill position, guys. We can talk about Dalvin Cook. We can talk about Justin Jefferson. We can talk about Thielen. We can talk about Cousins, which we did a little bit on Monday. But... It all comes down to the offensive line, which has been a big question no matter what. I mean, that predated Kirk. That predated Teddy, honestly. Um, that's been the Vikings' MO for a while, as they haven't been able to put together a really good offensive line. I mean, this offensive line hasn't been good since, what, Steve Hutchinson was playing for the Vikings? So, I mean, it's been a while. And the biggest thing that they're going to need to do if they want to be successful on offense this season... I mean, yeah, it comes down to Kirk because he's the quarterback, and that's totally fair. But the biggest aid to Kirk isn't Thielen always. It isn't always Jefferson. It isn't even always Cook. It's the offensive line. I mean, when you look at it, Minnesota's offensive line has been, dare I say, good. I'm not going to say great. I'm not going to say elite, but they've been good. They've only allowed, uh, what is it? They've only allowed... Two sacks so far in three games? That's pretty dang good. Uh, you've, of course, had the penalties that uh, screwed you over in week one. But at the same time, they've been playing pretty well since then. Since the first half of that Cincinnati game, they've been playing pretty well. They've kept Kirk upright for the most part, and that's the biggest thing. Uh, they've always been good at run blocking. So obviously it helps Dalvin, but they could always run block. The Vikings have always been able to run block because that's what they've wanted to do. They've wanted to run the ball. They run a zone running scheme. It helps out the running back. It makes you look a little better. But in terms of passing, when it's straight up, this guy's going to run at you, and you have to just stop him. And it's always hard. It's always easier to run block if you're an offensive lineman because you're actually running to a spot on the field. You are 
at the 50-yard line, you have to get up to the 45, and you have to try and find a guy, push him. You have the momentum running straight. This time, it's when it's passing, it's different. Because the guy, is, he's trying to barrel at you, and you can only go so far down the field. You basically have to dig in your heels and just push back from your, the, your back ankle and just push and try and hold that line. And you can only realistically do it for about three seconds. Even the good ones. So it's it's really, really hard to pass block. It's not as hard to run block for obvious reasons. And also when you're, I mean, it's just when you're uh, pass blocking, they're trying to put moves on you, the defenders are, they're trying to do this. When it's run blocking, the defenders sometimes take a second because they're pausing, they're trying to read the play themselves. Pass plays, they just pin their ears back and go. But they've been better this season. And taking a look at each one of the offensive linemen, Rashad Hill, he's probably been the worst one. He's ranked 72 out of 74, so a real good way to start it. But we're getting the least one out of the way here. He's got a PFF score of 42, and I know PFF isn't the best way to always rank offensive linemen, but there's really no other good statistic to measure with other than the eyeball test, which how many of us are able to sit there and pick every play and know that that's what he's supposed to do and that's, you know, all that kind of stuff without having, you know, without having a former NFL lineman or a coach or somebody who understands the game, like on a very, very, very high level, tell you that. So PFF is kind of the best thing we have uh, for the time being. Rashad Hill, 42 PFF score. That's not good. 42 out of 100. He's given up only one sack, but just hasn't been uh, hasn't been as effective as a, you'd like him to be. But the good news for that is Christian Derrissaw has had his first full practice yesterday. Uh, he was dealing with a lot of injuries. He recovered from surgery to be in training camp, then got hurt again. And now he's starting to get back, worked back into the mix. And the Vikings were going to mix him in slowly anyways. I Even though Christian Derrissaw is back, I would hold my breath as to when the Vikings... I wouldn't hold my breath, I should say, for when the Vikings want to bring him back and bring him into the fold, like get him snaps in a game. Especially when you started 1-2 and two and you kind of need to start winning games to get yourself back in the playoff conversation. So expect Derrissaw to not play unless Rashad Hill gets hurt. That, I think, is the thing. Derrissaw's maybe you wait till after the bye week or maybe you wait till you play Detroit or something like that. But I... I don't think Derrissaw plays for a while. Zimmer's always been slow to start rookies unless he has to. Brian O'Neill wasn't supposed to start as early as he did. He just had to because everybody got hurt. He stepped in. He did fine. He did really well. I can't say the same thing will happen for Derrissaw just because we don't know. So that's the left tackle situation. Now, of course, it's the most important offensive line position, but you've been able to get through so far, and keep in mind that they have had some good pass rushes come from... When you look at teams like Arizona, they've had you know Chandler Jones, J.J. Watt. Look at some of the rushers they had. So, looking at Garrett Br or uh, Ezra Cleveland, excuse me, he has a 64 score. Um, he's only allowed one sack so far this season. Of course, switching over to left guard, been fine. He's been fine. And the kind of theme with some of these linemen is, is that they've been fine. They haven't been huge disasters, and we'll get to that in a second. Garrett Bradbury is a 53 score. He's had three penalties on the year, but only one sack allowed. And for those of you center enthusiasts, uh, you guys know, year three is when centers take the biggest leap. Garrett Bradbury's in year three. This is the year where they kind of just figure it all out. It's a lot to process if you're a center. You have to understand the blocking assignments. You have to call out things at the line. You have to do all that stuff, and you have to make sure that the ball is snapped properly. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into being a center from the mental side of things other than just 
Garrett Bradbury was getting straight up pushed back by some pass rushers. So for him to have a, a good start to the season so far, it's not great. It's more just he's been holding his own, which I think has been fine. Ole Udo now has actually been – he's the Vikings' top-rated lineman, according to Pro Football Focus, with a score of 72. He's had two penalties on the year, but no sacks. He really just kind of came out of nowhere, but the Vikings kind of – it seemed like it was the plan all along. I know after the draft, uh, us armchair GMs were like, ah, you put in Wyatt Davis at guard, and you put in Derisot left tackle. Well, the Vikings like to go veteran options anyways, but we expected that the guard position, Wyatt Davis had a good chance to win. He didn't. He didn't look that great. Now, granted, he's only a rookie, but Ole Udo was the guy from the very beginning. Very first day of training camp, I remember Spielman in interviews was very, very confident in what Ole Udo could do, and I kind of brushed it off as uh, Spielman kind of hyping up like a project guy like he usually likes to do because when you're a GM, you want to be known for the guy that can kind of find these no-name guys and make them work, and that's honestly how your bread is buttered and all that kind of stuff, but Ole Udo, man, he's been playing very well. He's, again, just came out of nowhere to be a very solid option for the Vikings, one of their best linemen. I think the right side of your offensive line being solidified, at least for the early part of the season with Ole Udo and Brian O'Neill, who has a 68 score, zero sacks allowed, by the way, continuing um, an impressive start for O'Neill as well. O'Neill being solid isn't a surprise, though. Um, even though he has a 68 score, I still am very confident in Brian O'Neill. I still think that the Vikings have a solid right side of the offensive line. That left side with Bradbury and Cleveland or um, with Cleveland and Hill, excuse me, is a little shaky, and that's not always the best. And some of these pass rushes, rushes the Vikings are going to face, like, they have Miles Garrett, and I believe Jadavian Clowney for the Browns. It's going to be a pretty tough task for some of these defenders that they're going to have to take down. And, of course, they're going to have teams like the Packers that have given the Vikings trouble in terms of pass rush. You're going to have to play the Rams at some point. You're going to have to play the 49ers. You're going to have to play the Chargers. You're going to have to play both of the Bosa brothers at some point. So you need to make sure that your offensive line is in a good position. But keep in mind, this is beneficial not for Dalvin Cook as much because Cook could excel with the shoddy offensive line that he did. This helps Kirk Cousins, and this, I believe, is one of the reasons why he is having the season that he's having. Kirk is doing well, and I don't want to take anything away from Kirk Cousins. But I'm going to put it right into the words of Dalvin Cook. When he is a clean pocket, he's one of the best quarterbacks in the game. That came from Dalvin Cook. And the point was, you give him time to dissect a defense, and he can do it. Now, granted, any quarterback can. But the point is, if you can keep Kirk upright, even just a little bit, he can make some throws. He can make some good throws. He can zip the ball down the field. We know he's got the accuracy. We know he's got the arm. The problem was is if he couldn't buy time, and the offensive line is buying him a little more time, and that's been huge for him. So I don't want to take anything away from Kirk Cousins. All I want to say is that this he should be pulling an Adrian Peterson and buying his offensive line snowmobiles or something. I know he can afford it. So that's the biggest thing to take away from this offensive line. Uh, taking a look now at, uh, at our – Injury report here. This, of course, came out. This is from Wednesday's practice, so a little bit behind, but they, the updated ones haven't come up yet. Uh, the, for the Browns that did not participate, Greg Newsom, the corner, he's out already, uh, so that's an advantage for the Vikings. J.C. Treader, the center, had a knee injury. Uh, Jedrick Willis, offensive lineman, 
Odell Beckham was limited in participation, but I'm sure he's going to play. Uh, Jack Conklin and Chris Hubbard both uh, were limited. And sometimes when people are limited on Wednesday, or even if they don't practice, keep in mind sometimes they're just veteran rest days. Um, like with, uh, I believe it was with um, Eric Kendricks on Wednesday as well. He had limited participation, but it was more of just a veteran, like just get your rest kind of a thing. Um, for the Vikings, Conklin didn't participate, which isn't uh, isn't ideal because behind him, you have basically Ben Ellison, Holly High School stand-up. But uh, you have him and uh, really nobody behind. I'm, I'm honestly, I know they traded for somebody, Chris Herndon, there's his name. He hasn't really done much. I've seen him in on a few plays. He hasn't made a catch, I don't think, but he's been there. He hasn't done much. He traded a fourth-round pick for him. But you have to figure that if Conklin can't go, that's a big blow to Kirk Cousins because he likes his tight ends uh, and at least has that option, and Zimmer moreover likes the tight ends in the offense as well. Barr, we talked about him yesterday. He was limited. So was Chris Boyd, Delvin Cook, Harrison Hand, Eric Kendricks, and Xavier Woods. Um, again, I'm expecting most of these guys to play. I'm just not expecting anything from Anthony Barr at this point. So who knows what's going to happen uh, with that situation. All right. Well, I think that about does it for our Vikings segment here. Let's dive into the next topic. And I want to talk for a second, moving into the Minnesota Twins here. And as the season gets, as the season winds down, there are certain things that you just kind of, when your team's not competitive, when your team isn't going to make the playoffs, you start looking for next year already. You start looking for players who are finishing the year well and going, okay, well, can the Twins do something with him next year? And there's a couple guys that I think the Twins can kind of, excuse me, kind of do something with. And that's Jorge Polanco. He's the first one. Jorge Polanco isn't just a nice player. Jorge Polanco has turned himself this season into a building block for your franchise. He's a pillar of what you want to do and going to be a pillar for years to come. Well, one, he has a cheap contract. Remember, he signed that five-year, $25 million extension uh, before the 2019 season. So he's he's under contract. He's very, very, very cheap. And he's a veteran, homegrown talent that you have on your roster. When you look at the season Polanco's having, he came out of nowhere really to have 30 home runs on the season. And that's that's impressive. I mean, it really is. Because Jorge Polanco had power. We seem to have a little bit of it. But he was dealing with a toe injury the last couple of years. Last year for sure. And then the uh, dealing with a little bit of stuff in the late part of 2019. So to see him finally come to form, because he didn't have the fastest start to the year, and it made a lot of people wonder if Polanco was maybe washed or if maybe he was if he was too far to save. And people are having that conversation about Max Kepler now. But for Polanco, uh, he's been having a great season so far. He has 32 home runs. He's driven in 94 RBIs. He has an OPS of 831. And when you look at baseball reference, he has a war of 5.2. And keep in mind, based on the war assumptions of uh, based on the war assumptions here of baseball reference, a war of five plus is all-star level. And honestly, I know Nelson Cruz was the twins lone all-star because I mean, he was the most recognizable player around baseball, and Polanco wasn't playing his bet. He really turned it on right after the All-Star break. But Polanco has been the Twins' best player this season. 
Buxton has been the most talented and the most fun to watch, but Polanco stayed on the field. He played, he's played in almost every game this season, or at least he's made himself very, very much available. He's played in basically every, he's played 149 games out of a 162 game schedule. And we still have about five more to go, four more to go. He's done pretty well this season. And you can use that. You really can use that as a building block for your franchise. When he's on the top of his game like he was, I think it was sometime in either in early August or late July, where he was just dominating. And he, of course, he hit a three-run home run last night for the Twins in the first inning. But he was dominating in that part of the season. And it made you go, he's playing so well that he could almost talk the Twins into just going full force to compete in 2022. Not that cute, like, let's see where we are, and if we're not, then we wait for next year. Like, no, full steam ahead. He was playing that well. And there's questions to be said about where Polanco goes if he goes to shortstop, because there's going to be a hole there. Simmons isn't coming back. So the Twins are, and Royce Lewis isn't ready. You don't know if Austin Martin is going to be a shortstop, and even if he is, he's not ready to go next year, at least right away. You're going to need to bring in somebody or find somebody to plug that hole. I don't think the Twins move Polanco back to shortstop. He probably just stays at second. One, because they moved him over to shortstop because of Royce Lewis and his error in the wildcard series last year gave them a really easy out to go, all right, second base. But he was going to move anyways because Royce Lewis and now and or Austin Martin are going to be taking that spot. So moving Polanco over to second for a year, even half a year, and just move, or moving him from second to short, it doesn't really feel like it makes a lot of sense. It feels like you're just kind of messing with him and messing how he prepares. I wouldn't mess with it. Just leave him at second base and let it be. So who does take shortstop? Well, if you're looking for an in-home option, one could be Nick Gordon. And that's the biggest question. The only reason I say shortstop, he hasn't played a lot of shortstop in the big leagues. It's been second base. It's been outfield. It's just kind of been wherever they needed him to go. And the biggest thing is he has no home. He has no position to take. And the reason he doesn't have a position to take is the Twins, keep in mind, Derek Falvey and Thad Levine didn't draft him. It was one of Terry Ryan's last first-round picks. Uh, it was Nick Gordon. I can't remember who they took in 2015, and then it was uh, Kirilov in 2016. But Nick Gordon was a top-five pick. He flamed out in the minors. He had injuries. He just couldn't quite take the next step with his bat. And he's just a guy who doesn't have a high ceiling. He's a guy that can make some plays. He, he clearly is a Major League Baseball player, He's just not going to be an everyday starter Major League Baseball player, at least not one on a competitive ball club. And that's the thing is, what do you do with Nick Gordon? He doesn't have a high ceiling or a position for him to call his own. Shortstop might be the best home for him until everybody is kind of figures out what's going on, until you figure out what you're going to do with Royce Lewis, until you figure out what you're going to do with Austin Martin, until you find the next guy at that position you might have to stopgap it. Now, keep in mind, though, this free agent class for shortstops is going to be really, really good. And the Twins have shown that they don't really they don't really give a crap about Nick Gordon. I mean, they sent him up and called him down multiple times over, like, Williams Ostadio. So they, they clearly don't really envision Nick Gordon in their plans. They're just like, it's a young player who we have under team control for a lot of years. So unless we can find somebody that wants to take, take him in a trade package, or unless something happens... He's just kind of going to be 
the guy who just kind of fills in positions and just kind of does whatever. He kind of takes on that super utility player, kind of more so in a Luis Arise path, except Arise is a better pure hitter than Nick Gordon and has a better vision at the plate than Nick Gordon. Their fielding is probably about the same. I haven't dove into the numbers on that. I could be wrong. But it feels like Nick Gordon is kind of following that Luis Arise path in terms of a super utility player. But there is a good free agent class of shortstops. Obviously, you have the Carlos Correa's of the world, and you have the Trevor Stories. They're not going to the Twins. But because of those high guys at the top, all the big bidders, all the very you know wealthy teams are going to go after the high-priced guys, which means guys that would normally go for a decent amount of money, their market is going to be lower. So you can take advantage of that. You can either sign them to a cheaper multi-year deal, or you basically say, hey, we're going to give you like a one-year deal, we'll pay you some money, and we'll give you another chance to do well, and then hit the market again next year when Trevor Story and Carlos Correa aren't on the free agent market, or at least haven't set the terms for this free agency period. All right, well, moving on here for the Twins. We're moving on now to the Timberwolves. And let's talk here for a second about Sanchin Gupta. Because we've had the Rosas stuff, we've had the Rosas drama, and the toxic culture he created at um, the Wolves Practice Center, Mayo Clinic Square, all that kind of stuff. The cheating on his wife with a female employee, and just being caught on camera making out in a Minnesota United game. There's just a it was the way he basically ruined relationships with other agents and uh, other GMs. That's that's Rosas. Rosas was a bad pick. We talked about the incompetence of the Wolves on Monday. We're we're past that conversation. I could I could just talk forever on that one. But talking about his replacement, Sanchin Gupta. Looking at the prospects in terms of a Ben Simmons trade, he wants Ben Simmons bad, and that's been reported. I don't. It's not a great kept secret. Uh, it's really just kind of more of what do they do and how do they do it. Rosas, it felt like, and this was based on a tweet here, and, and I'm waiting for it to load so I can pull it up. Uh, somebody on Twitter, uh, Sean uh, Hyken, Sean Hyken, um, on Twitter said a lot of the Timberwolves-Simmons stuff that he heard had stemmed from Gerson feeling pressure to make a big splash to impress the new ownership group. Now that he's gone, it'll be interesting to see how this impacts the Simmons situation. And I think that if you're a fan who wants Ben Simmons, I think you're probably it's more likely to happen than it was under Rosas. I think Rosas was going to give the well I tried, but I didn't want to sell the farm and all that kind of stuff. And I don't, I'm not a huge Ben Simmons guy. I don't think Ben Simmons necessarily takes you to where exactly you want to go. I think he's, I think he makes your team more talented. I think he takes your team more competitive, more legitimate. But again, like, I don't know what the ceiling is. I don't think the ceiling gets as high as maybe some Timberwolves fans want it to be. Uh, so looking at this, but according to uh, Darren Wolfson of Score North and Five Eyewitness News, uh, he said Sanchin Gupta has a better relationship with Daryl Morey. He says Sanchin Gupta wants Ben Simmons bad, more than Rosas did. And he's going to try and work his butt off to acquire Ben Simmons, is what Wolfson said. And so here's the thing about trading for Ben Simmons. I I think the trade machine guy, I know the Wolves don't have a lot of assets besides first-round picks and maybe Malik Beasley or Vanderbilt or, or you know McDaniels or whoever. 
But this is the guy that invented the ESPN trade machine. So I think he knows a thing or two about wheeling and dealing and being creative and kind of manipulating cap and all that kind of stuff. So I think he could pull it off in terms of the deals. You're still going to have to give up multiple first-round picks. But I think he can make it work. I think he can find a deal to make it work. And here's the thing about a Ben Simmons trade. It is your best chance to keep Carl Anthony Towns long-term, is to get Ben Simmons. Your playoff, competitive series, you get all that kind of stuff to show Cat that there's a future in Minnesota, that there's a winning path in Minnesota. And man, this is just the beginning. Let's see this thing through, all that kind of stuff. It's the star power with Simmons, with Cat, with Ant. And it gives you the flexibility because of Ant's growth potential. Like, hey, Ant is still growing into his own player. And we are able to, let's say, get into the playoffs. And we lost in the first round, but we took it to seven games. You know, I'm making this hypothetical. I'm not saying the Wolves are going to do that. Heck, let's say they somehow, I'm not saying they're going to, win a playoff series. And they say, hey, look, this is what we can do. What happens when Ant grows? What happens when we try and make another splash in the offseason? Or what happens when we try and tweak this or that? So there is a lot of potential. I think it's your best chance to show Cat that you're an aggressive team that wants to win. I think the new ownership group, they don't take control in a couple of years, but they are in the building now, and they're slowly starting to transition. So they're going to want a winning team. They're not going to want, they're going to want to come in. They're going to want to do things their way, but at the same time, they want to turn around the Wolves. And what better way to turn around the Wolves than make a splashy trade and show, you know, we mean business, we're here, we want to win, we want to show that we're competitive, all that kind of stuff. I think Simmons can do that. I think he makes you more competitive, more talented. I'm not going to even say guarantees you to make the playoffs because it's the Minnesota Timberwolves, and they need to prove it to me before I'll actually give them any benefit of the doubt. But it still would make a very fun situation. On the flip side, though, Carl Anthony Towns might just leave anyways. He might be saying, I'm going to play the good soldier, I'm going to do all this kind of stuff, but when I get to about one or two more years left on my deal, I'm out. I am gone. You know, like, And that's not nothing personal. It's just I need to get out of Minnesota. I mean, you heard Cat talk about how just defeated he was. Talking about all the crap he's gone through with COVID, with people just in the media, just beating on him up and down, past players, former players, and just for all the dysfunction in Minnesota, because it hasn't been Cat's fault. He's been given zero room to do anything productive. So I think he might just say, you know what? I'm going to be the good soldier. I'm not going to throw a fit, at least yet. Not saying Cat would, but I'm saying like Anthony Davis was a happy soldier until he wanted to go play with LeBron and then all bets were off. So Cat might just leave anyways. So why would you want to trade all of those assets and then be without Cat? And then now you couldn't at least build another team around. Because if you want to say, let's play the long game and let's keep getting these first round picks or let's keep using these first round picks to get other players down the road, um, that could be it. Because you're really selling the farm. You're selling the next three years for Ben Simmons. Um, there's no guarantee that even trading for Ben Simmons works out. As I said before, this is the Timberwolves here. So it is, it's not a, it's not a safe bet. And don't think that your infrastructure is necessarily going to make it better either. All right. Well, now moving on here to the Minnesota wild here, wrapping up the podcast for today, the wild are playing preseason game number two tonight against the Avs. Uh, interesting thing I want to note because this is a preseason game. I'm not, a hockey buff, I can't sit there and break down the X's and O's for you. I can give you my inferences, I can give you my takes on things, but I can't uh, break it down in the same way I can other sports. But looking at the lineup here, 
Adam Beckman was put in over Jordan Greenway. And the one thing, and I heard some people talking about this a little bit, um, maybe not so much in with this game, but just kind of one to watch is Jordan Greenway. He's been this prospect. He's been this, you know, flashy thing for a couple of years now. And I'm not, he wasn't like a top, like, this guy's going to completely change your team in the way that people were saying Kaprizov would. But he was still a guy that people were like, yeah, he could turn into a nice, solid role player for your team. He's got a guy with, he's got a guy who's got a future and really hasn't materialized in maybe the way that I think the Wild fans and the Wild team necessarily wanted it to go. Uh, because, and it's not even necessarily statistically, it's more of what you want out of Jordan Greenway, the overall player. Because is he in trouble of falling out of favor with his team? He might be. Remember the heart-to-heart that uh, Everson and Gurren had to talk about with Greenway a couple of years ago. They were saying, look, we had to have a heart-to-heart. We had to really talk to him and say, you need, we need more out of you. We need you to do more. We feel like you're not giving us enough. And looking at just the stats, he's obviously gotten better because he was a very young player. And he, he still is. He's only 24 years old. So he's got room to grow. But it's the maturity standpoint, I think, is what they're looking for. He's growing as a hockey player. It's do they have that maturity in terms of the player that they want him to be? Because good players are mature most of the time. Rarely are bad players immature, at least when they conduct themselves like in terms of preparation and all that kind of stuff. And again, I'm not trying to infer anything. This is all third-hand reporting. This stuff I'm hearing and reading about just like all you guys. But Greenway has been putting up stats. When you look at uh, the plus-minus, he had a career-high plus-minus 5 last season. Compare that to 2018-19, it was negative 12. Um, plus-minus when he's on the ice of 5. When you look at uh, the 6 goals he had last season, um, 26 assists. I mean, he's a guy who makes play. He has he's a, he can make plays. He's a nice player. But there wasn't the question was never about Greenway on the ice because we know he's developing. But... It's the effort issues. It's do you feel like he's a guy that fits into the piece? Because remember, Gurren is a culture guy. Why do you think Ryan Suter got ousted the same thing with Parisi? Suter could still at least play, or at least his contract wasn't eating money the same way that Parisi's was. He needed to make a culture change because he knew that the culture inside the wild locker room was not good. It needed to be changed. So they had, Gurren had to make the decision. He had to make a decision based on culture and based on what he wants that team to be from that way. And I know some some sports and some people and teams, they make a big deal out of culture and maybe make it a little bit too much. But you, I mean, everybody who's worked in a place that's had a bad work culture has had people that have been bad employees or bad co, you know, bad coworkers and all that kind of stuff. It does impact how you work a little bit. I mean, I don't want to pretend it, I don't think it's the end of the world, but it, it does have an effect. So, Basically, this is Bill Gurren. This is Dean Evison saying, we don't have time for your BS, Jordan. You got you to gotta put it together. And maybe he does. There's a good chance he does. There's also a good chance he doesn't. I mean, Gurren is not shy about it. He does not care about your feelings. And I, he's that East Coast hawky kind of thing. And you know what? That's totally fine. I think it's a breath of fresh air for a Minnesota sports franchise. But... Maybe a kick in the pants is all he needs, and maybe it helps him turn around. Maybe it doesn't, and they trade him or whatever. Who knows? But 
and who knows, I could be overreacting to all this, but it's preseason, so that's just kind of the MO. We always kind of overreact in the preseason. But it still would be, it's still something interesting that you should be watching for, at least in the early part of the season, just to see how it goes for Greenway and how it goes for the Wild. All right, that'll do it here for the Minnesota Sports Podcast for today. We'll be back tomorrow with our Friday podcast. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Minnesota Sports Podcast. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star review and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word.